Well, why don't we uh, open our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. That's where we're going to be at tonight. And uh, if you guys are new, uh, happy you guys are here. Uh, we've been taking the Gospel of Mark and just, in essence, going through this great book. And uh, right now we're in chapter 13. That's where we're at. So uh, you guys will need a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles provided for you guys over there if you'd like. If you don't own a Bible, please take it. It's our gift to you. We want you to have a Bible. And uh, what we're going to do tonight, we're going to be talking about the subject that we looked at last week. We're going to continue to take a look at the subject that has to do with prophecy. It's one of those subjects, we'll get into it more in just a second in some ways, uh, depending upon the type of background that you came from. Uh, when I say the word prophecy, you get a weird twitch in your eye, you start getting kind of freaked out, you're like, what are we going to do tonight? Um, I'll explain a little bit more about this in just a second. Like I said, based upon what type of background, church-wise, you maybe have come from. The word prophecy might conjure up a lot of strange emotions and feelings and sentiments. But um, So there's two different main types of ideas that the word prophecy can oftentimes be described of uh, throughout the Bible. One of which is sort of someone speaking, like prophetically, someone coming to you and saying, I'm going to give you a word of prophecy. That's not what we're going to be talking about here tonight. It's the second type of prophecy that has to do with speaking about something that's going to take place in the future. It's the type that, if you are into prophecy, that's the type of stuff you like to think about and look at. Nostradamus type stuff. You're like, I want to know what the future holds for me or for somebody else, even though Nostradamus was not a Christian. You get the idea. Things that kind of speak about events that will take place in the future. And uh, we'll be taking a look at the subject matter of that tonight and hopefully be bringing some form of a balance to it uh, so that at the end of this, uh, if you do have kind of weird body twitches because you hear the word prophecy and it freaks you out, hopefully tonight what you'll find is Jesus in the middle of all this. That's our goal tonight. So I'm going to pray and ask God to help us with that, to make sure that that is where we ultimately target that we hit, and then we'll just uh, give the rest of the Lord t- here tonight. So let's pray, and then we'll jump in. God, we ask you for your help here tonight. We need it. Uh, Lord, it, just with anything in your word, we... Don't ever want to approach it just kind of with our own lenses by which we view things. Uh, Because God, oftentimes our lenses are tarnished. They've got fingerprints all over them. And oftentimes we don't see things clearly. And so God, what we need here tonight is we need your wisdom and your power, your Holy Spirit to clarify things for us, to help us to see Jesus tonight. God, we just give you this evening tonight. We ask that you would work. That revelation would go forth and that God, in response, we would sing... We would love, we would worship, we would confess sin to you, give you our lives. So we give you this evening tonight. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I'm going to preface again what I prefaced last week with tonight. And really to begin with, it's the idea that really the Bible, uh, we believe that the Bible is true. We believe all the Bible is true. And though at the same time, even though we believe that all the Bible is equally inspired, uh, we also recognize that not all the Bible is equally clear. In other words, there are occasions and there's passages that sometimes we can read that don't make a lot of sense or are a little bit more challenging or a little bit more difficult. And it's one of the reasons why if you've been around Christians for any amount of time or involved in Christianity or any involved, in, involved in any type of church, you've realized that oftentimes churches sometimes can be split or divided over various types of uh, doctrinal issues. And uh, the reason for that is simple, is really there's a lot of areas in the Bible that are not equally clear. In other words, when you read an ancient document, you have to give some sort of interpretation to it. So sometimes there are certain passages that lead people to coming, uh, that lead people to come to different types of conclusions. But one of the things I really want to make certain that we are on the same page with regard to is that we want to make a distinguishing mark between uh, elements of theology that are we would describe as essential basics of theology. Uh, these would be things like who is Jesus? Jesus is God. Uh, become man. He's not a man. Become God. That Jesus came. He died. Jesus rose again from the dead. The third day, Jesus ascended to heaven. Jesus died for our sin. Um, Jesus was born of a virgin. All of these things I would describe and kind of put into the camp of being essentials. We don't want to modify those or edit those things. Those are essential things that really, one of the things that you'll discover is that mostly all Christians uh, surprisingly agree on that. All of those things. What most Christians disagree over is what I would describe is oftentimes identified as the non-essentials. These are things as to whether or not are the gifts of the Spirit for today, uh, Calvinism slash Arminianism, the battles there, whether or not and when the rapture is going to happen, is there going to be a rapture, what is the end of the world going to look like. These are oftentimes things that Christians oftentimes 
disagree over. And what I want to make certain is that we kind of create a culture here that we agree on the essentials, that we hold to the essentials, we don't divide over the essentials. Non-essential things, they're open for debate. They're open for loving discussion and dialogue. We won't divide over those things. We won't go there. That's not what we want to do. Uh, We're not saying don't have convictions. We are saying have convictions, develop convictions, search the scriptures, understand the Bible, do the best that you can, but realize that oftentimes on non-essential issues, you'll oftentimes discover that good Christians, people who love God, uh, oftentimes can disagree over these things. We don't want to be a church that necessarily divides over non-essential things, because really here's sort of the criteria I look at. If at the end of the day, in eternity future, one day when we're going to be with Jesus 100 million years into the future, we're not going to be talking about when the rapture is going to be happening. We will be celebrating the glory of Jesus. I don't even think the rapture will even be a topic 100 million years into the future. So if that criteria is correct, why would we use uh, secondary, non-essential issues to divide the body today? It does not make sense. We should have conviction over these things. We should think about these things. We should study these things. But we should not allow them to divide us uh, from faith in Christ and love and fellowship and family among ourselves. Does that make sense? So what we're going to be looking at here today is basically continuing the picture of the chapter that we started last week in chapter 13 that has to do with this picture of future prophecy. Uh, We looked at this last week and essentially pointed out that chapter 13 of the Gospel of Mark and its parallel passages in Matthew chapter 24 and Luke chapter 21 are very difficult passages. Most Scholars and historians, uh, students of the Bible will basically point out this is probably one of the most challenging passages in the New Testament, which probably would also mean in the entire Bible, are very challenging. And the reason for that is because oftentimes scholars debate as to when do the certain events that Jesus talks about take place, what's uh, in the most immediate future, uh, meaning the people that whom Jesus was talking to, uh, and what's in the far future, meaning hasn't even happened yet. So we're here 2012 on the verge of 2013, and we still have not yet to see some of these events that will one day yet transpire, take place. So scholars debate over, you know, what's what and what's near, what's far, so on and so forth. So that's what we're going to be basically looking at here tonight. So what I want to do is I'm going to give you guys a little bit of framework that we'll jump into, begin to take a look at. We'll read the passages as we go through, taking a look at the various framework that I'm going to build for it. The first thing that I want for us to see in the passage is that we're going to see Jesus make a prediction. Jesus himself will prophesy. He'll give a prediction. The second thing we'll see is Jesus then gives an exhortation to his disciples. In essence, gives them a word of exhortation ordering them, commanding them, encouraging them to do something, which we'll take a look at. And the final thing that we'll ultimately take a look at is Jesus' vindication. And what we'll see with regard to that is that prophecy, and anybody who makes a prophecy, or anybody who's going to say, hey, here's what's going to happen, it's going to take place, it's going to look just like this, waits sort of a period of time of are they legit or are they a nut job, right? So if I stand here today and I'm just like, okay, guys, by 9 o'clock, we're going to have a gnarly earthquake. Um, you guys have the right to basically say, okay, is this legit or is Brian like going, he's going crazy. Um, by 9 o'clock, if nothing happens, um, I'm illegit, all right? You guys can dis- disagree with me because I've just proved myself to be a nutcase. But if I, like, say some sort of a prophecy and it comes to pass exactly the way that I said it, by 9 o'clock, set a time frame, um, then I would be vindicated, all right? Um, that, in other words, what I said came to pass, therefore, there's some form of vindication. And what we see with Jesus is that he's going to describe the events that are going to transpire that will ultimately point to the fact that everything that he's done, everything that he said, everything that he was all about, everything that he claimed, he'll be vindicated because it will come to pass. Everything that he described and declared will actually happen exactly the way Jesus said. So with that, let's jump in, begin to take a look at Jesus' prediction in chapter 13, beginning at verse 14. I'll read this, and then we'll begin to take a look at it. Verse 14 says this, But when you see the abomination of desolation, I'll describe that in a second, standing where he ought not uh, uh, to be, let the reader understand, and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let the one who are on the housetop not go down, nor enter into the house, nor take anything out of it. And let the one who is in the field not turn back, to take his cloak, 
And the last for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. Verse 19, it says, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now nor ever will be. And the Lord, and if the Lord had not cut short those days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. So first of all, I just want to basically say that what Jesus is describing here is a future event. Now again, he's talking to his disciples, and I think probably what's happening, I want to kind of build a little bit of the context. So again, I, I realize for some of you that maybe weren't here last week, we're kind of coming sort of halfway into kind of a prophecy. It might be a little bit of an awkward uh, entry point into what Jesus is describing, so I'll try to give you guys a little bit of background. Up until this point, Jesus has been a, an, a, a preacher throughout the region of Judea. In other words, these are sort of little villages. For three years, Jesus went to these little villages. He preached everywhere Jesus went. He brought transformation, brought healing, brought change into people's lives. Liberation. Finally, the last week of Jesus' life, he enters into the city of Jerusalem. And one of the very first things Jesus does when he enters into the city of Jerusalem is he goes to the temple. And some of us are familiar with the story. Jesus takes a whip. He starts driving out all these money changers. And this is Jesus' way just prior to going into the temple. He sees a fig tree, curses the fig tree, later comes back, the fig tree's withered. And this is Jesus' way of basically declaring that the temple... The whole system, the whole religious system has become obsolete. It's not functioning. It's not working. It's become very corrupt. Rather than the temple, now again, we've got to try to wrap our minds around this. The temple was so significant to all of Judaism. Let me give an example to some degree of what this might be like. For example, if you were a Roman Catholic, it would be almost like saying Rome is completely overturned. It's so corrupt, so messed up so out of whack, so out of connection with the people, and therefore it's going to be judged. It's totally over. Or like our nation. If for some, some reason, if the nation became corrupt all the way to the very center, all the way to the very core, it would almost be kind of like a time, like well, God, we, we need new uh, government. We need new leadership leading a better charge. What Jesus is in essence saying is that the temple that was supposed to stand as the place that brought people to God, all nations to God, all sinners, all people that were from all around the world, people that were far from God, people that were sick, people that were uh, struggling, people that were under the oppression of debt, that all of these people can come to God congregating at the temple, that this would be the entry point. This is where heaven and earth would overlap. But those who were in charge of overseeing the temple and the entire work that was supposed to take place there, they become corrupt. So rather than being people that help the vulnerable, and help the marginalized, and help the people that were messed up in society. Uh, Jesus basically says, rather than helping the vulnerable, they crush the vulnerable. They devour them. They eat them alive. Jesus even says, see old ladies? Little old ladies. They devour little old frail grandmas. Jesus' way of basically saying the system is so corrupt, so messed up, it's under God's judgment. It will not any longer exist. And so what Jesus is, in essence, saying in this particular passage here is he's describing the events as to when the temple would, in essence, be under this judgment of God, when it would be destroyed. Okay, real quickly, in AD 70, actually AD 67, all right, so probably about 35 to 40 years after Jesus died, rose again, ascended into heaven, about 35 to 40 years after Jesus left, uh, what happened was Rome which was sort of the governing uh, officials over the region of Israel, they were basically being confronted by rebellion amongst the people of Israel. And in sort of a turn of events, Rome got tired and fed up with the Jewish people, and they basically sent massive amounts of troops into the region of Jerusalem, and they besieged the city of Jerusalem, which was the main city. And after sort of, uh, I don't know, about a year, year and a half, couple years of besieging the city, uh, it was just a horrible center that had basically taken place. Uh, inside the city walls, people were starving. They didn't have any water. They were running out of supplies. People were dying. If you were pregnant in that particular day, your babies were dying. There were uh, accounts of women uh, giving birth to stillborn children because they were so malnourished, malnourished that even their own babies couldn't survive. Uh, there were uh, accounts of cannibalism within the city walls. It was horrendous. It was literally a holocaust that took place. And finally, 
uh, what happened was the walls of, of Jerusalem were breached, and once the armies came into the city of Jerusalem, they went to the very center of Jerusalem, which was the temple. I said this last week. Uh, most ancient cities were cities with a temple. Uh, Jerusalem was kind of the opposite. It was a temple with a city. Everything in Jerusalem made Jerusalem significant because of the temple. So these guys went in and they destroyed the temple. And exactly what Jesus said would happen, happened. Everything that Jesus gave an account for actually took place. Just like he said. And it's very interesting because Jesus is giving warning to his disciples. He says, these things are going to happen. And when you see this thing called the abomination, which makes desolation... This is actually a quote from the ancient prophecy of uh, Daniel, who was one of the prophets. Uh, he describes this particular event, Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, and Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. Jesus basically borrows this language, and what he's in essence describing is an event that would happen that would basically render the temple desolate, destroyed. Now, most scholars, most theologians basically see this happening, first of all, uh, about 150 years or so before Jesus came. But a lot of other scholars also see this taking place a second time, I should say, during the time of AD 70 when the temple was finally destroyed. About 150 or so years prior to Jesus, the temple was just made desolate, meaning someone offered a pig uh, on the altar of Zeus that they erected inside the temple. This was under the Greeks. And it basically destroyed, it defiled the temple, and there was a, a Jewish holiday that basically was birthed out of that, most of us might be familiar with, is Hanukkah. It was actually birthed out of that particular event that took place about 130 years before Jesus came. This particular event that takes place in 70 AD destroys the temple. The temple is gone. It'd be kind of like pulling a little child aside who loves Disneyland and saying, Disneyland is under judgment. It's not making kids happy anymore. It's not the happiest place on earth. All the people in costumes are creepy. It's completely, rather than blessing the kids, making them happy, it's taking advantage of the kids. It's totally messed up. Everybody's out to just make money for themselves. Nobody cares about little kids anymore. It's under judgment, and Disneyland's going to get the plug pulled on it. So if Disneyland just one day was vaporized, was taken away, gone, there'd be this sort of question in people's mind, where do we go for fun now? If you're like eight years old, like where do I go to find the happiest place on earth, all right? Because Mickey's gone. Donald's gone. All those rides are gone. Life is gone. Life as we knew it. Joy as we knew it. Pixar's gone. Everything's gone that brought us happiness and joy. It's gone. That's what happened to some degree with the temple. The temple's gone. And this is Jesus' way of saying Life as you knew it is going to change. Worship as had become familiar to you for many, many years will be completely overthrown. The world as you've enjoyed it will go into upheaval. It will not be the same world that you used to live in. But here's what I love about Jesus. Jesus is not a guy that just simply comes on the scene and throws down criticisms without also providing a solution. I said this last week. In other words, Jesus is not like you and I. We have the propensity to kind of walk around, look around, and see things that are kind of messed up, things that are not working right, things that are not functioning properly. People do this with, all, with the church all the time. People come in, they see things that aren't being done right, things that could be done better, things that maybe could be services in the church that aren't services in the church. I just had this conversation with a guy a few weeks ago. He was talking about some sort of ministry. He's like, hey, do you guys have this particular thing? I'm like, No. He's like, ah, oh, it'd be really cool if we did that. I says, you know, it'd be really cool if maybe God may want to lay that upon your heart to leave that. Really, at the end of the day, what we need are leaders. We need people that are willing to take creative initiative and be willing to implement things. So what Jesus, we see with Jesus, is he didn't just simply go around and criticize the religious system. He doesn't just simply look at the temple and say, the temple is so out of whack, so messed up, I just want to make fun of it and blog about it and tweet about it and say a bunch of nasty things about it. Jesus says... I have a solution. I will be the solution. What Jesus, in essence, is saying is that I've come to replace the temple with something better. That's me. That's what Jesus is saying. So what Jesus, in essence, is teaching is that rather than going to the temple to have your sins forgiven, you now go to Jesus. Rather than going to the temple to gather all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all people, you go to Jesus. 
rather than going to the temple to be the place where you go meet with God, you go to Jesus. He's the mediator between God and man. Jesus is saying, I will be everything that the temple failed to be. If you're oppressed, you would go to the temple to be prayed for. Jesus says, don't go to the temple anymore. If you're oppressed, come to me. If you're under debt, come to me. If you're sick, come to me. This is what Jesus is saying. But what Jesus does is he says, in essence, the temple, as it's currently standing, is under judgment, and it will be destroyed. What's interesting is we know a little bit of history. There's a guy by the name of Eusebius. He tells us in kind of a history book, he tells us that what happens in around AD 67, so about three years before AD 70, he describes this event. He says, the people of the church, that's the Christians, that lived in Jerusalem, they had been commanded by a revelation given by or given to approved men before the war to leave the city and to dwell in a certain town, Apuria, called Pella. In other words, what Eusebius tells us is that just before Jerusalem was ransacked and the temple destroyed, Christians who lived in the city of Jerusalem remembered the words of Jesus, that Jesus said, look, when you see the abomination of desolation taking place, when you see wars and, or you hear of wars and rumors of wars, and when you hear and see all sorts of crazy things taking place on and around Jerusalem and rumors circulating, he says, be ready, be aware, because this is a sign that things are going down very quickly, that Jerusalem will be sacked, that the temple will be destroyed, save your life, leave the city. And Eusebius tells us that's exactly what happened. Christians, obedient to Jesus, left the city, and this was basically their way, Jesus' way of saying, listen, the system as it has pre-existed is under judgment. And if you stay connected with the system, when the system goes, you'll go with it. But if you separate yourself from the broken system, when the system goes, you won't be broken along with it. You'll be saved. You'll be trusting me. You'll be anchored in the system that will last forever. This is what Jesus is saying. Now, what Jesus is describing, as I already mentioned, is prophecy. He's predicting the future. This is an amazing thing. None of us have the ability innate inside of ourselves to predict the future, right? None of us. I mean, like, we can read polls. We can be like, I think Obama's going to be the next president because you can read polls. But you know, nobody knows for sure, right? I mean, at the end of the day, if you and I knew how to read the future, we'd be, like, cashing in, right? We'd be going to the horse races, and we'd be cashing in on, like, games and betting and all that because we'd be, we'd, you know, that, that'd be, like, something that all of us dream of possessing. None of us have the ability to see the future. Jesus does. He is outside of time. His father lives outside of time. So Jesus is able to see the end from the beginning and therefore declare it. Sometimes God actually gives people the gift of prophecy. People sometimes can say things. This is what we see with the prophets. God gives the prophets something by way of inspiration. They speak it or they write it down. So sometimes when certain things can happen, we can look at those things and think, it's amazing how this happened. For example, uh, the book of Isaiah describes Behold, a virgin will conceive. Well, who would have ever guessed a virgin would have had a baby? Well, God would have. And God planted that thought in the mind of Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah wrote it down. Isaiah in chapter 53 talks about uh, that he would basically be uh, pierced for our transgressions. In other words, his side would be pierced. Psalm 22 describes that his hands will be pierced, his feet will be pierced. How did the psalm writer know this. How did Isaiah know this? Well, they didn't know this. God knew it. God spoke it to them. They wrote it down. We read it, and a few thousand years later, a few hundred years later, depending upon if you wrote it first century, read it first century, or you read it in our day, we can read this and realize this is amazing. This is totally accurate information because God said it. Okay? So prophecy oftentimes, what we see is it gets abused, and as a result, it gets a lot of bad press. This is one of the reasons why I said at the beginning. When I say the word prophecy, for some of you kind of get this like really weird twitch. You're like, oh, really? We're going to talk about prophecy? Is that what those nut job, nutcases talk about all the time? And the answer is yes. That is exactly what nutcases love to talk about. But at the end of the day, don't let that discourage you or persuade you away 
from a biblical understanding of what prophecy is. I'll give you an example some of the nutcases that tend to give prophecy a bad rap and cause it to have bad press. All right. Last year, some of you guys remember a guy by the name of Harold Camping. All right. Harold Camping. Uh, Ironically, back in 1993, he made a prophecy. He described, he declared the end of the world would happen in 1994. Well, while he was up to bat, he swung and he missed. All right? Several years later, after coming out of hiding, he comes out and he does another swing and a miss. He prophesies that Jesus is going to come back. The end of the world is going to happen in 2011. It didn't happen. It did not happen. And what ends up taking place is at the end of that, maybe you guys some watched some of the news clips after that, Larry King, all sorts of news clips, they basically made a joke out of prophecy. They're like, ah, Christians are not cases. They say stuff like this, and it doesn't happen. They spend all this money. This is just craziness what these guys are doing. All right, and, and I want to affirm the liberal press. I totally agree with them. You're like, can he do that? Yes, if you love Jesus, you should agree with that. Because what happens, it takes something like prophecy that Jesus did. That's a good thing. And when it gets abused and misused, it ends up causing people to look at it and totally destroying it and throwing out as somehow it's just completely ridiculous. This is really unfortunate. Because much of what Jesus said was prophecy. I'll give you a couple examples of this. Louis Farrakhan of the Nation of Islam. Uh, he's a, one of the leaders there, one of the main leaders there. Back in 1991, he predicted that the War of Armageddon would basically take place around the Gulf War crisis. Uh, obviously, that did not happen. There was no Armageddon. There was a bad war. A lot of people died, but it was not Armageddon. Joseph Smith prophesied that at the conclusion of his life, the end of the world would take place. This is circa 1891. Didn't happen. Ellen G. White, she's the founder of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. She made many predictions throughout her life that the end of the world would happen. All of them were wrong. So today, if you go to some Seventh-day Adventist churches, some of them are really legit. They love Jesus. They're good people. They care about the gospel. They care about the Bible. Others are basically devotees to Ellen G. White. Uh, when we first planted the church here, we started off in a Seventh-day Adventist church, the one downtown right across the street from Grace. They're great people. By the way, they love Jesus. They're our brothers and sisters. In fact, I remember having dialogue with them one time about Ellen G. White, and when her name was even brought up, they all kind of get a little bit like red in the face, like, uh, yeah, that's something we don't really like to talk about. That's something we wish we can just forget, but it's part of our family. It's unfortunate. It didn't happen, but we love Jesus. So because they love Jesus, because they recognize Ellen G. White was not right, Jesus was, Ellen G. White wasn't, they basically recognized that prophecy became sort of a bit of an embarrassment to them because of its abuses. Jehovah's Witnesses, they predicted that the second coming of Jesus would come around 1994, I'm sorry, 1914. Obviously, that did not happen. If you've ever, ever watched Christian television, you oftentimes get a very Extremely healthy, healthy dose of a lot of prophecy. You get different people on TV, and they come, sometimes look glazed over in their eyes, and they're a little bit creepy, and they say things. Um, and unfortunately, what ends up happening, a lot of times the things that they do, and they say, don't make sense and don't even really come to pass. I'll give you an example. I've been around, I've been a Christian for a long time. And I remember for many years kind of being around sort of circles that focus so much primarily upon prophecy, upon the end of the world, upon who the Antichrist is, and being aware of the last day's apostasy, and talking about the rapture, and talking about a lot of other things like this. And what I want to say is this, is that unfortunately, because oftentimes there's a lot of abuses, and oftentimes because there's a lot of tendency to focus on all of these things, who the Antichrist is, when the rapture is going to happen, when the end of the world is going to take place, where's Armageddon going to happen, all these things, trying to read the book of Revelation, what ends up taking place is one of the things I've noticed, at least in my personal experience, is that there's a lot of speculation, not a lot of Jesus. This is a problem. And here's what I'm really trying to emphasize. Should we not take prophecy seriously? Absolutely not. We should totally take it seriously. What we should do is we need to be able to discern well and recognize that because it oftentimes gets abused, because oftentimes it gets hijacked by 
oftentimes well, good-wishing people, good-intended good intended people, that oftentimes they somehow forget to keep Jesus in the center of this. I meet Christians like this oftentimes, people who love Jesus, but somehow this is just sort of a tangent they get off on, and they focus so much upon what's going to happen in the end of the world, uh, who's going you know, to be the president because the president actually might be the Antichrist or Google might be the Antichrist or we've got to watch out for using credit cards because that might be the mark of the beast. All sorts of crazy speculation. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of Jesus in the middle of that. And that should concern us because if the gospel is true, if the gospel is what we're to be about, then Jesus should be what gets the most press in our lives. And what I'm really trying to say is this is that we should take prophecy serious, but what we should understand, in fact, I'll throw this out kind of to you as a criteria. Here's a criteria I'll kind of throw out to you whether or not you can ask yourself this, ask other people that you know in your, in your life, in your family, that might sort of have these propensities to kind of go on in these extremes. Have you guys ever met any people like this? Or am I just making this stuff up? Anybody meet people like this I'm talking about? Tend to focus a lot on prophecy? Talk about it a lot? Okay, both of you, great. Um, Here's my point. Here's the criteria I would throw out. If you'll know that prophecy is being studied properly, if at the end of the day, what prophecy does is it leads you to be more humble, more in love with Jesus, more focused on seeing lost people found, more full of hope, that'd be the criteria I would say. If you're studying prophecy right, that would be the proper result. You would be more of a lover and a worshiper of Jesus. If you're not studying prophecy right, you become more argumentative. You become fear-based. You're constantly freaking out, worried all the time about all the things that are happening in Christianity. You're constantly telling people, don't read books, don't do this, don't watch that, don't let your kids watch TV, move out into the desert, find some place where you can isolate yourself, homeschool your kids, constantly live in fear, stash a lot of money away, get as much food as you can for rations, because Armageddon's going to come, buy a gun, buy some dogs, train them, churn your own butter, figure out some sort of a way to protect yourself, because the world is going to hell very quickly, and unless you hunker down, you're going to be destroyed. Not studying prophecy properly. Jesus is somehow absent. Prophecy should lead us to more humility, more love for Jesus, more love for the lost. If it's studied rightly. Okay? So I hope you guys understand the intention where I'm kind of coming from with this. That we should not dismiss prophecy because it's been abused by people and it has been widely abused by many people many of those people sometimes even happen to be our own brothers and sisters so how do we deal with that okay so good brother sister loves jesus uh they oftentimes come bringing sort of very sort of extreme ideas they always want to argue how do you deal with those people again what i would just suggest lovingly help coach them back to jesus look in a few weeks a lot of us are going to be hanging out with family Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving happens to be one of those holidays that brings all the family members together. But all of us have an uncle that we're a little bit embarrassed of. We're like, ah, oh, every time he comes to Thanksgiving, he drinks a little bit too much. He starts saying things that we're just like, ah, oh, really? You got to say that? It's a little bit embarrassing. Don't say that. A little bit embarrassed. But he's our family member. We love him. Even though sometimes he says things that are a little bit embarrassing, that I wish he didn't say, that we're a little bit troubled of, still our family member. Does that make sense? So my point is this, we should take prophecy very seriously because Jesus prophesied. Is that point well taken care of? He's got it? All right, let's move on. Next, Jesus gives an exhortation, verse 21. What we see here, he says, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, Do not believe it, for false Christ, false prophets will arise to perform signs and wonders, to lead astray, if possible, the very elect. But be on guard, for I told you these things beforehand. Now this is the area in the passage that oftentimes scholars get a little bit over disagreement or disagreements of. As to, okay, recognizing, Jesus is no doubt talking to his disciples about the destruction of the temple. 
We know that because this is, what, this is the theme that's been happening. The moment Jesus walked onto the Temple Mount and brought sort of a whip onto the Temple Mount uh, sellers of goods. Jesus was in essence saying, the temple is going to be gone. I'm going to replace it. And what Jesus is telling his disciples in this scenario, be ready, because in your lifetime, in your generation, before your generation is over, you're going to watch this happen. Your world will change as you know it. The temple will be destroyed. It will become totally obsolete. It will not be needed for anything any longer. In fact, it will not be in existence any longer. So this is where kind of scholars oftentimes see that there was an immediate fulfillment that was going to take place around 35, 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. But then also in the future, this is where some scholars see maybe there's going to be another temple that will be erected and built that talks about another destruction at the end of the age, another judgment from Jesus at the end of the age. And again, this is what a lot of times some speculation can sometimes come in. And my suggestion would be this. Very likely, very possible that this could end up happening in the future. Um, obviously today, if you go to Jerusalem, there is no temple. You don't see a temple. It doesn't exist. But what's very interesting is that there are movements in Israel today to actually rebuild the temple. I actually went to one of them. It's called the Temple Institute. You can go online. Find the Temple Institute online. Check it out. It's pretty interesting. But what it is, it's a group of people that have a lot of money that have figured out ways to basically build everything they need for what they describe as the third temple, the next temple. They have plans as to where they're going to build it. They have apparently all the utensils ready to go. So it's very possible that there will be another temple that will be built in the future at some point. Right now, if someone were to build a temple, probably would not go over very well with the Muslims. Not too well. The point of the matter is, is that what ends up happening oftentimes here is a lot of speculation. You hear a lot of Christians spending a lot of time spinning their wheels in a lot of ways in endless hours of speculation trying to figure this out. What I want to try to do is keep the focus on Jesus. The fact of the matter is, is that Jesus is in essence saying there's a new world that's being birthed, and I'm it. And I will come back again. And when I come back again, I will set the world to right. All the wrongs, I will set it to right. Before I come back to judge Second temple, which is what we saw in AD 70, or come back in the very end of time. Jesus says there will be false Christs that will come. He says, beware. So Jesus offers his followers this warning. Beware, be careful of false Christs. So I want us to kind of think a little bit about this. The word that he uses, their false Christ, is pseudo-Christos, which means obviously a false Christ, something that's false, pseudo. And what Jesus is saying, beware, be careful, because there will be these false Christs that will come. I want to describe that oftentimes what we can do, we've got to be careful of, when we think of a Christ or a false Christ, what we think of, uh, the word Christ literally means king. So a false Christ would be a false king, someone that comes on the scene and basically makes promises and says, if you come to me, if you trust me, I will give you peace, because that's what kings do. I will give you security, that's what kings offer. And I will give you protection, that's what kings oftentimes make promises of. What Jesus is saying is if someone comes to you and makes these false claims, they'll give you peace, security, and comfort, don't believe them. They won't give you what they promise. They're false Christs. Be careful of this. I'll kind of describe this in sort of like a macro level. I'll describe maybe like a bigger picture idea of a false Christ. These are ones that oftentimes are easily spotted. These can oftentimes be like cult members, cult leaders, I should say. One of the unique things oftentimes with cult leaders is they have a very, very uh, charismatic personality. They draw people in. They tell you what you want to hear. You listen to that. They say, you know, come to me. Give me your money. I'll bless you. I will give you peace. Trust me. Trust my words. I will make you happy. I will give you inner peace if you trust the things I say. And they have the tendency to gather these followings of people, large gatherings of people. Some of you are probably too young to even remember, but back in the 70s, there was a guy by the name of Jim Jones. He basically kind of created this huge following. Uh, he used to live up in San Francisco area. They moved out, and he brought almost 1,000 people to their death by drinking Kool-Aid. That was his way of basically saying, follow me. I'll give you peace. Here's the way that I'll give you peace. Drink the Kool-Aid. They got 
kind of not really peace, but they ended up following him and they died. And we see this sort of on a macro level. The problem that I would just suggest, it's easy for us sometimes to just simply think about false Christ as being this macro level. We can look at it and be like, ah, I don't want to follow that guy because he looks like he's probably a false Christ. Or politician, false Christ, making false claims. They seem like they're asking me to worship them. And there's a tendency for us to think that, you know, well, I've got to be on guard. I've got to watch out because if anybody comes to me and they sit in front of me or stand in front of me and they say, hey, worship me, I will immediately know, ah, false Christ, I will run from that. The problem with that is to some degree there's truth to that. Definitely run. It's on a macro level. My concern is on a micro level. What I mean by that is that there's a propensity for us to miss the most deceptive forms of false Christ. And here's what I mean. If the word false Christ, pseudo-Christos, basically means a false king. Kings give false promises. They make promises that they can't keep. What that means is that all of us, on every level of our lives, are potentially in danger of being lied to. I'll give you an example of this. The motto of a false Christ basically is this. Your life for mine. You give me your life, and then I will give you something back. It's really this idea, you sacrifice your all for me, and I will give you something back. A false Christ, in this particular idea, can also be something like a girlfriend, or a boyfriend, or a job. Because every relationship, oftentimes, that we can potentially enter into, offers some promise attached to it. Right? Come to me. Hang out with me. We'll be hanging out. We'll be together. I will be a protector for you. I will give you peace. We'll be friends. I will give you com comfort and security. But the reality is, they can't do that in an eternal sense. And if you build your life, here's what happens. We oftentimes can believe those promises, and then we give our heart to that person. Because we want desperately to have peace. We want desperately to be protected. We want desperately to be provided for. So we give ourselves wholeheartedly to these empty claims. But we don't think they're empty claims. We think they're legitimate claims. But at the end of the day, when they break, and they will break, these people or institutions or things, macro level false Christ or micro level false Christ, when they break, and they will, we break with them. This is the tragedy. This is why Jesus says, beware of these things. Watch out for these things. Don't let your heart be given over to these things because you will be broken when they break. The motto of Jesus is not your life for mine. The motto of Jesus is my life for yours. False Christs are like vampires. They suck the blood of its victims. Maybe that's one of the reasons why our culture is totally fascinated by vampires. Because there's something about it that resonates true in our hearts. It's part of the storyline of most of our lives. Maybe you've never thought about your life this way. But what ends up happening is something of great beauty, something that captivates you, something that you look at and think, I want to be part of that, it comes to you and it makes promises to you. And then you give it your heart, you give it your life, and what it does in turn is it sucks your blood, your life. But the uniqueness of Jesus is Jesus is not like a vampire. He doesn't suck your blood. He doesn't take your life. He gives his blood. He gives you life. This is the uniqueness of Jesus. Look, at the end of the day, this is imperative for us to understand that when Jesus says, beware of false Christ, Jesus is not just simply saying this because he wants to so, sort of yoke us in with all of these demands, all of these things that we've got to do and follow or not do and avoid. The reason why Jesus gives us these commands is because he loves us. He knows that if we give our hearts over to a pseudo-Christ, a false king that makes false claims, that makes demands of us, that it can never give back to us, all false Christs come to us and make heavy demands for heavy investment of our lives, but in return, all it ever gives us is a recession. 
Jesus, on the other hand, comes to us and says, I will give my blood for you. I will give my life for you. And the grace upon all grace, I will allow you to sow what I've reaped. Vice versa. To reap what I've sown. This is what Jesus promises. I will give to you everything that I've done for you. For you. You don't deserve it. But I love you by grace. I give it to you. I will give you my life. This is what Jesus does. Jesus tells us, beware of false Christ. Because if we give our heart away to false things, that our hearts become as fragile as those things that we give them to. Or your heart becomes as durable and strong as the heart that you give it to in the case of giving it to God. If all we see is Jesus throwing down commands, don't follow false Christ, and we don't see the heart behind it, it doesn't really change us. But if we see the heart behind it, that Jesus truly says, don't go the way, don't devote your heart, don't give yourself to these false Christ, because if you do, then you will become broken when they break. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples, that if you give yourself to the temple, and if you stay in that system of the temple, when the temple falls, and it will, you will fall with it. But Jesus says, if you put your confidence and trust in me, I will never fall, and I will never drop you. I will never let you be broken. I will always hold you. It doesn't mean that your life will be always perfect, and without any types of difficulties or hardships, but what Jesus promises is that when you go through hardships, I will be like a dad carrying you. This is his promise. This is what Jesus states. The last thing that I want us to take a look at is Jesus' vindication. Because what we see with Jesus is that he makes these radical statements, these radical claims, and the real question is, is are they legit? Will they actually happen? Or is Jesus just simply a false prophet? This is the issue. Mark chapter 13, verse 24, verses 27, goes on and says this, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be fallen from the heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And pause right there. Jesus basically uses language that most scholars would describe as being apocalyptic. In fact, Jesus actually borrows these scriptures from the Old Testament. Uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 13, verse 10, and other, other passages throughout Isaiah, even another passage in Jeremiah, describes events like this actually happening. So, in the language that Jesus borrows when he describes in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from the heavens, so on and so forth. This sounds pretty freaky and creepy. Maybe if you've been in pastors or churches before, you've heard pastors describe that, you know, comets are going to come in out of the sky and bombard the earth, and that may be true. I mean, I'm not saying it's not. I'm just simply saying it's also possible that what Jesus is doing is he's using metaphorical language the way that Isaiah did. We already know that Jesus is borrowing the same language from the book of Isaiah. And in the context of Isaiah chapter 13, it's in the context of the downfall of a nation called the Medes or the Medo-Persians. And it describes the events that are around the downfall of this particular nation. So the question is, when Isaiah describes the downfall of the Medo-Persian empire... And he describes it like uh, stars coming from the sky down upon, from the heavens to the earth. Is Isaiah describing literal events that will actually happen in terms of comets coming out of the sky, hitting the earth, asteroids coming down? It's possible, but unlikely. That perhaps what Isaiah is actually defining or describing is something so profound there's so much destruction, so much devastation. The only way that oftentimes we can use to describe things is in poetic language. It's possible that's what's happening. So again, I'm not simply saying that it's not possible for these things to be literal. It may literally happen. There may be comments that will fall out of the sky at some point in the future. I don't know. I'm just saying, but it's also likely and also possible, this is metaphorical language to describe such cataclysmic events that can be best simply described in metaphorical, poetic type of language. But either way, it's pretty gnarly. Any way you want to look at it, it's pretty bad. You don't want to be there when this particular thing happens. 
But Jesus goes on in verse 26. He says, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Again, Jesus borrows this particular passage out of the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. It's a passage in which Daniel describes that one day in the future kingdom, the Son of Man will actually come on the clouds. The picture coming on the clouds is sort of this idea that oftentimes is maybe not literal clouds again, but maybe like a glory cloud, the cloud of God's glory. The cloud of God's weightiness. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, the word glory that can be translated about God's glory is, is the word kabod, which basically means something that has substance or weightiness to it. Now here's Jesus coming on the cloud of God as a way of basically saying, what's up guys, I won. Everything I said happened. I'm vindicated. Everything I said would come to pass just like I said. Look, at the end of the day, we can hear the things of Jesus 2,000 years after the life of Jesus. We live in a world where there's a lot of technology, a lot of culture constantly going on, constantly vying for our attention. A lot of things that we oftentimes can claim as being so important, but at the end of the day, it's easy for us to simply dismiss the words of Jesus and just simply think, well, Christianity is just about going to church, it's doing stuff, but the reality is that Jesus is taking this world somewhere. History is heading somewhere. It began with Jesus. He created it all. Sin entered the world and destroyed it all. But God entered into this world to bring about redemption through it all. And we're still part of that story. And the issue is, is, is this, is that if we see with the life of Jesus that everything he promised, he prophesied that when he came, he would be crucified. Several occasions, Jesus told his disciples, Guys, we're going to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, I will be handed over to the religious leaders, and I will be crucified. Several times Jesus said that. They didn't get it. They didn't see it. But Jesus said it, and it happened exactly like he said. Jesus also described that after his death, it would actually birth something brand new. New life would happen. He would resurrect from the dead. He would be the prototype of this whole new movement that would begin. And what's amazing to me about this is 2,000 years have transpired since the resurrection. Christianity has shown no signs of waning. Continues to grow. How is that possible? Because Jesus was true and right. And his words are accurate. He said the temple would be destroyed. He said it would be replaced by a better way in which people would meet God through him. He said that he would be the one by whom people's sins would be forgiven. Some of you here today bear witness to that because you've experienced that. That's been your experience in life. That was my experience in life. Just late 15 years old, early 16, I became a Christian. That's when I met Jesus. My life was radically changed. I didn't know Jesus before that. I went to church my whole life. I grew up in the Catholic church. I knew about God. I did all the Catholic stuff I should have done. I knew all about God. In fact, I would even say that I was totally straight up orthodox in everything I believed about Jesus. I never disbelieved God. I didn't know him, though, until I met Jesus. He forgave me of my sin, forgave me of my sin. He introduced me to God, showed me who the Father was. And what changed in my life was I went from being a person that simply knew about God and stood at a distance admiring him to knowing God and being a worshiper of him. That's what Jesus does. That's what he prophesied. And if Jesus prophesied that he would be crucified, if he prophesied his death would give birth to a brand new movement, if Jesus prophesied that the temple would be destroyed, and all of these happened exactly as he said, then why would we disbelieve that he would also prophesy that one day in the future he would come back again and make right all of the wrongs that are in this world. That just like as he judged the temple, so he will also judge the wickedness in this world that has not done what God has intended for it to originally do. So let me finish with this thought. Oftentimes what typically happens when people talk about prophecy and Jesus coming back again and this notion that he's going to come back, judge the world, so on and so forth, we get this picture in our mind that Jesus is this very angry, grumpy, 
frustrated middle management worker with a clipboard looking for somebody to simply can. And what ends up happening is sometimes people hear this type of stuff and they're like, oh my gosh, I need to get right with middle management. I don't want to get canned. I want to keep my job. So we sort of adopt these ideas of living in fear, like I've got to kind of get myself looking really busy because as soon as Jesus walks by my cubicle, if I'm not working hard, he's going to can me. I don't want to get canned. Let me say this. If all we have are facts about Jesus, that doesn't change us. You can believe the facts that he came, that he died, that he rose again, and that he's coming back again. You can believe that. Simply having truth, facts, information doesn't change you. It may make you fearful, but it doesn't change you the way the gospel intends to change you. What God intends to do is he intends to change you within your heart, to change you to become a different person. And the only way that that changes you is those facts have to take upon themselves meaning. To just simply know that Jesus died doesn't change you. You've got to know why Jesus died. You've got to know why Jesus came, why he died, why he rose again, why he's coming back again. And if you understand and know why he came, he came because as a king, he's not a vampire. He's a king that comes to give his life for subjects that don't deserve it. Not to bring judgment to you, upon you, but to bear your judgment. Not coming to shed your blood, but to bear his blood, to shed his blood for you. Not to add oppression to you, but to take your oppression upon himself. That's why Isaiah says, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, so that you who are oppressed and afflicted can go free. Because he loves you. You've got to know why he did this. And why he's coming back again. He's coming back again to make right what's gone so horribly wrong in this world. This is why it's imperative we ask ourselves, what Christ am I following? The true Christ who gave his life for me or false Christ who demands my life for it? To the degree that you see what Jesus did for you and you trust him, the loves in your heart will begin to be rewired. Your hands and your affections for things of this world, for sin, things that actually bring destruction, bring defilement upon you, you begin to loosen your grip upon those things because love has changed you. Not just some sort of weird sentimentalism that we oftentimes get sold, uh, you know, wholesale in today's market of ideas, but the love of God that comes bringing weight, that has substance to it. To the degree that you see this love and you trust this love, to that degree you can give yourself over to this God. You can give your heart entirely over to him, no matter how fragile, no matter how broken, no matter how bruised or battered you may feel, this God will not break you. He will not destroy you. It even says that he will not even break a bruised reed. He will not even snuff out a smoking candle. He will actually take your life and rebuild it. Because that's what this king does. I want to invite you to love, to worship, to trust this king, to give your sin to this king. Because he's a good king. He's coming back again. He will make right all that which is wrong. And if our hearts love that which is wrong and devote ourselves to that which is wrong, when Jesus destroys that which is wrong, and if our hearts are still in it, we will be destroyed along with it. But Jesus has come to deliver us, to rewire, to change our hearts, to become lovers of him. And by loving him, giving your heart to him, you will become as durable or as fragile as the God that you devote yourself to. I invite you to give your heart, trust Jesus. He's strong. His love is strong. His love will strengthen you, heal you, 
We're going to sing. We're going to finish with a couple songs of worship. I want to invite you to sing to him, to confess your sin to him. We'll have communion if you like. We have them in the little stations in the back. And invite you to just partake of that if you're a believer, if you love Jesus. The Bible talks about taking it in a worthy manner, which means to by faith and confession of sin, faith and repentance, repent from our love affairs of these things in this world that break us, and trust faith, trust God, trust him. And the way you do that, when you partake of the bread and you eat the cup and you remember the fact that Jesus didn't just simply come to criticize what's broken and wrong with this world, he came and he says, I will replace it and I will pick up the tab. And the tab was his broken body and spilled blood. That's why we love Jesus. Because of what he did for us. I'm going to pray. We'll sing. We'll worship. Confess sin. We have some rugs in the front. If you guys want to just come sit down before Jesus, that's totally cool. If you guys want, we're just going to sing. Pour your heart out to Jesus. God, thank you for tonight. Thank you that we can pour out our heart and our love to you. We just invite you here tonight, God, to just manifest your ways. We think you are already here, but we pray, God, that you would make yourself known, tangible, visible. So God, help the worship in our heart to just simply be a response to what you've revealed to us tonight.